everyone. Well, I got up this morning and uh, I was uh, looking at Facebook and uh, went over to my brother's page because uh, a friend from the past, actually from high school, uh, had uh, asked to be one of my friends and I hadn't seen him for probably 20 years and uh, it was kind of interesting, just like a bunch of memories started flooding back and things like that. And I bumped over to my brother's site because he found him first. And uh, in, in the little exchange that you can read, he asked uh, uh, what I was up to. And my brother told him that uh, I am now a reverend, which was uh, kind of interesting to hear. And then he responded, a real reverend or a reverend like the Reverend Run DMC? <laughs> <laughs> And I was thinking about this morning, and I, like, I think I'm more like the Reverend Run than, uh, than a real Reverend, whatever that means. But uh, I do love God, and uh, I do love serving Him. So, uh, so uh, and I was just thinking about the different pathways that, we've, uh, that we take. Most of my friends in high school, unfortunately, are either uh, no longer with us, or many of them, I ended up in prison. And... Uh, it was good to see that uh, he was neither of those, and um, but I was just thinking about all the kind of different things that we used to be involved with, and how going down a certain path uh, leads somewhere, and oftentimes we don't really think about where those paths are leaving, leading, and I was thinking, oh, that's interesting that you know we're in this series right now, moving along the path. And I wanted to take a few moments this morning just to kind of remind us all what path, the path that we're on in this series uh, particularly. And uh, you see this symbol around, the pathways symbol with the three uh, kind of paths coming into one uh, leading to somewhere. And what the symbol uh, is meant to represent is our our desire for us uh, to be fully devoted followers of, of Christ, and I'll just put F-D-F-C, fully devoted followers of Christ, and not talking about just uh, becoming a follower or uh, getting uh, saved or anything like that. I'm talking about real discipleship here, where we've really given our lives over to God and, and uh, to Christ and say, look, I'm going to follow Christ and uh, yield my wants and desires over to Him and try to live out the vision that He has for my life. And here at uh, E3, we've, we've kind of recognized three different common paths uh, to people getting to this point where they, they totally surrender uh, their lives to the Lord. And um, it would be helpful if I had this up here with me. Uh, the first week, if you remember, we, we talked about going from being a spectator of the Christian faith to a disciple of Jesus Christ and what, the, what that meant to actually make the decision of, you know what, I'm not just going to stand back and, and be an American Christian or something like that, but I'm going to actively get into the footprints of uh, Jesus and really follow in his footsteps. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about this idea of, of going from just merely being recognized to actually 
being known in a community, a local community like this. Uh, not just trying to, you know, the norm effect that I like to call it. When uh, Norm walked into Cheers, everybody would say, Norm, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, the whole idea that Cheers was a great place because it's a place that everyone knew your name. Uh, as followers of Christ and in being a body of Christ, uh, that isn't good enough. That's a surface level thing. And uh, for us, we need to invest in deeper community, but we're going to talk about that more next week. In the past three weeks, including this week, uh, we've been really talking about this idea of just going from being an attendee of the local church and, and actually being an owner and the idea of the difference between just attending a place and actually owning the vision that God has entrusted us with. Our purpose of a church to make, mature, and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ. What does it mean to invest and, and be part of a local church? And, and we've been talking a lot about this idea of love. This idea of loving one another. And uh, if you remember the first week, we really talked about the contrast of love and hate. How Paul was talking and trying to uh, show the, the contrast of what it really means to love by starting with hate. And hate being this selfish, self-centered type of thing. And that is the path that you take to ultimately, the ultimate outcome of selfishness is hate. And then we said, okay, what's the opposite of that? And Paul talked about this idea of sacrifice. And how sacrifice is this, this truest sense uh, or tangible aspect of, uh, of somebody truly loving someone. And I was thinking about that, and, and uh, I came across Colossians in chapter 1, where Paul is kind of talking about this idea of sacrifice, even though he never really says the word. And if you turn to chapter uh, 20, or excuse me, verse, chapter 1, verse 24, uh, I've kind of, in this, in this short passage, I've circled six words uh, that really demonstrate Paul being a walking, com walking commentary on this idea of, of sacrifice. And I'm going to read this uh, passage and then I'm going to stop on each one of these words and ask you to circle it in your Bible or something. Just it kind of, it's, a, it's a, a visual of this idea. He starts out and says, I'm glad when I suffer. And I circled the word suffer because he's... He's willingly suffering, and, and, and let's face it, we don't willingly suffer unless we're doing it for a, a reason, and he's doing it here, and we'll see, for others. He's actually sacrificing his comfort and suffering for a reason. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. And here in this first sentence, we have this connection that Paul's a master at doing, connecting, saying, look, when I suffer, I'm connecting myself with the suffering of Christ. Why? I'm suffering for Christ's body. What's Christ's body? The 
church. That, that there's this idea of this, this suffering that's going on to see Christ's body, to see the church fulfilling what God has called it to do. And if you think about the suffering aspect and the sacrifice aspect and you circle it back around, it comes back and it leads us back to this idea of suffering or sacrifice equals love. And when we sacrifice our personal wants or our our desires for those things that are bigger than ourselves, then we are tapping into the very nature of God of of, because God is love. And this is what Paul's saying. Look at I've suffered, I sacrificed, I loved the church so much that I gave up these things. And when I gave up these things for what was important to God, I connected and experienced his nature, which is love. He continues on. He says, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. And I circle responsibility and serving there. Responsibility. It's an interesting word. You know, what are we responsible for? Why would we be responsible? We're responsible when we we say, you know what, I'm going to take ownership of, of this thing, and it may not be what I want to do at the certain time, but I'm committing myself to this. Why? Because it's going to better the lives of people around me. This is the way when we're responsible, we show this idea, or we're showing love. In, again, serving, serving others. Serving is the opposite. Of, of being self-centered, getting out of our out of ourselves and serving ourselves in serving others. I had a gentleman come up to me after the gathering, said, "I'm in a depression. Can you pray for me?" I said, "Absolutely, I will pray for you." And and after we uh, we prayed, and he was kind of interested in in how I prayed because I I prayed that that he would experience God in his depression and learn what God wants and that in his depression it would motivate him to get outside of himself and serve others. And he said, why do you say that? And I said, I've experienced depression my whole life. And you know when I experience the most is when I just keep on looking inside myself and wondering why me. The best way to break a depression is to start loving others getting outside of yourself and finding others less fortunate than yourself. Is it an instant, quick, you know, heal? No. But if you think back of your life, your lowest points, where was your focus? It was not on others. It was not sacrificing for others, but it was being self-serving. And being self-serving feeds upon itself and it ultimately ends in destruction. And as he's saying, look, I, my responsibility and my serving of the church. Verse 26, this message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Basically, the message of Christ is for everyone. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. God who is love, His Holy Spirit lives inside of you. 
This gives you assurances of sharing His glory. I circled sharing. When we share, what are we doing? We're sacrificing. Maybe big, it may be small, but it is sacrifice, and our sacrifice shows love. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to, be pres- we want to present them to God perfect in the relationship to Christ. That's why I work, and I circled work, and struggle. I circled struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty, mighty power that works within me. And this idea of why do we work? We work because we want to provide for others. We want to contribute to others. The most unsatisfactory, the lowest satisfaction in work is when you're only making enough to take care of yourself or you're only working for yourself and for your own benefit. When you get stuck in that, that rut, that it be, there's just no satisfaction in it. But when you work and you struggle, I love the words that he's using here, that he's talking about working and struggling and his responsibility, what, to the body of Christ. And then I started thinking about, well, when do you know the body of Christ is alive and healthy? You know, the, the, the church, especially, you know, the local church is, is never going to be perfect, right? The reason it's not going to be perfect is that it, the, the body is composed of, of a lot of imperfect people. Broken, messy people. I, I read a little thing uh, this week. It said that that uh, being around crack pots, cracked pots, <laughs> I guess it could, this adage could probably go either way, is great because it lets the light in. You know, when we, we put up this uh, facade that we're, we're whole and we... we it, it literally, it blocks the light. And I was thinking about these different parts and, and how each one, you know, the church, you know, is never going to be perfect, but when can it be alive and when can it be healthy? You think about the human body. When is the human body alive and when is it healthy? And there's a lot of discussion about that in Scripture. And I was Reading, uh, I've been reading this book, it's called Personal Knowledge, uh, the post-critical thought on modern uh, psychology or, or philosophy, excuse me. And it's about as exciting as the title uh, uh, <laughs> sounds. And I was reading through it and uh, it came to a point where I actually, uh, I was reading in one hand and I had my laptop open to Wikipedia in the other. And I was reading, and I was just like, I hate reading a book where it just makes me feel stupid. You know, I just, I, I, it's like, 
You know, a lot of times I'll say, you know what, I'm reading this book, I don't really understand it, but at least I understand all the words. They just, all of them together isn't making any sense. This book, that's not even the case. I mean, they're coming, he's throwing out all this kind of different stuff, and I have no idea what he's talking about. And uh, so I've been sitting there, and I've been diligent in, and going through and trying to follow along with Wikipedia and all this kind of stuff. And he started talking about, nothing to do with the church, actually, but he started talking about this uh, gestalt effect. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. And uh, actually, several people, uh, if you follow me on Twitter or um, uh, Facebook, you'll see that I'll put up different things like I'm thinking about jumping or I'm thinking about it. People thought I was going to kill myself this week. It was kind of funny. Uh, I, no, I'm cool. I'm not. I was, I was thinking about uh, this idea, uh, the you know, way my mind works. I kind of like, I was thinking about jumping, like cliff jumping and stuff with water at the bottom. So, you know, call off the guys in the white coats. Uh, I, you know, I was, I was thinking, and I finally I put up, you know, this thing about, I'm thinking about the gestalt effect, and, and like a lot of, you know, several people get excited about that, and I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to talk about, but so if this is something like you're passionate about, what I'm about to tell you is all I know. So if you try to have a conversation with me afterwards, I'm just going to smile at you and say, that's nice, and I'm glad for you. But, but uh, this, this effect, this gestalt effect is, is very interesting to me. And it's this, this idea, and I'm just going to read it. It's, this is out of Wikipedia. The gestalt effect refers to the form, forming capability of our senses particularly with respect to the visual recognition of figures and whole forms instead of just a collection of simple lines, dots, or curves. And there's actually three ways to look at this, and you'll, it'll take you a second to come along with me to understand how I made this jump to how do you know when a church is healthy and, and a church. And the first one of these exercises is called emergence, and there's a little thing here. Can you see what that is? Yeah, it's a Dalmatian. Uh, and if you look at it for a second, you can see that it's a Dalmatian. It's sniffing something, probably a dead armadillo or something like that. And there's a tree off to the, the top left-hand side of this. But our mile, basically, all this is is just a collection of dots. This, there isn't any straight lines. The Dalmatian isn't really there. But we can, most of us can see the Dalmatian and the tree and all of those kind of things. Not because it's there, but because we're looking at these separate things, we look at them as a whole. And that's the gestalt uh, effect of when you have all these separate different things, but now you have form in it. The next one is this idea of multi-stability. Now this one messed me up. Let's do the easy one first. What do you see on the right? Two faces, a vase. You look at it, and they're, they're a candle holder uh, or a chalice. Okay, all the same kind of stuff. Basically, uh, this is not free thinking here. We're trying to get somewhere. All right. Uh, so either you can look at it and you go, oh, I see two faces, or I see a vase, a chalice, a candlestick, or everything Laura was going there. Stop thinking so much. Uh, but, but they're interdependent. It's a multi-stability, and your mind can go either way. Now, let me ask you a question. This wrecked me for, like, days and stuff. 
and I keep on going back to it because it messes me up, that box to the left, is it going down to the left or up and to the right? Yeah, it depends on which way you look at it. It depends if you put that line behind one another. Like if you move the line, if you force those lines, and I don't know how you're seeing it. Like how many people are seeing it going up to the right? All right. And how many people are seeing it go up to the left? Okay, and you can, but it makes it go back and forth. Yeah, you, your mind can only make it work in one way. How many people don't see a box at all? Because uh, that wasn't everybody. Okay, cool. It's our, our perception, and they, they, our minds say it has to go one way or another, so it's not, it, it's not doing either, actually. It's just two-dimensional flat lines, but our, our mind is putting something together that isn't there. And then finally, there's the reification. Isn't that a great word? Uh, here. Uh, what symbol do you see on A? Pac-Man. We see Pac-Man. What else? Triangles. Uh, B, a rectangle or some funky quotation marks. C, a circle or spikes. And D, what do you see? Yeah, you see Nessie. Yeah, locks that. And the interesting thing here is that the shapes that we're seeing uh, aren't really there. That the, these forms are, are appearing because of the single units. Like in A, if you take away one of those Pac-Mans, the triangle isn't there. It just, our mind sees a form there that, that isn't there. It doesn't mean it's not real, but it's not there. It's great, that triangle, there's something greater than the sum of its parts that are happening there. Same with the little quotation funny things right there, that, that uh, if you take one of those away, the rectangle goes away. Same, you take several of those little spikes away, the little sphere goes away. Or you have Nessie going along and you take out the tail or the head or something, you lose that water effect. And again, none of those things are actually there, but they are there. And what we, I know it's confusing, uh, but as you get to this, this point, you start to realize that when you have these things coming together and you look at these different kinds of things that, you know what, sometimes things are greater than the sum of their parts. And that, I made that jump after looking at that and saying, you know what, what would it look like if the church had the gestalt effect that, that no longer did we really... We're looking at the, the dots, but uh, if you go to the first slide with the Dalmatian, what would happen if, you know, each one of us represented one of these dots, but instead of seeing these dots, we, we start to see the vision or the picture or the painting of the church that, that God intended, that we're inter-reliant on one another. And then we have this idea of, of how does that incorporate, how do we get to that place? How do we get to a place where we have, that we're willing to, to sacrifice for one another? And I think that there's probably a step before that understanding, of, uh, before that we have this willingness to sacrifice, and that is uh, commitment. 
Now, this idea of commitment in our in the 21st century, you know, we're we're resistant to it. We don't like the idea of commitment. I was at Starbucks, and um, you know the the cups uh, that has different quotes on it, like the way I see it. This is the way I see it. Seventy six. Uh, uh, the author said this. A part of her quote was the irony of commitment is that it is deeply liberating in work and play in love. And that goes. That's counterintuitive than how we uh, have been raised, or or at least our culture tells us. How can commitment be liberating? And probably the easiest example of this would be, uh, think back, you know, you may be in this, but if you're married, think back about your dating life. And think about when you... You know, you didn't know necessarily if that person was going to call you, you know, on a Friday night. You know, you weren't really at that point where it was assumed that you were going to hang out on Friday night. At least the guy didn't realize that there was an assumption that you were going to hang out on Friday night. And, and uh, you have this kind of different ideas. You, but, but inside, you know, when you don't know if somebody's going to call you and you think, oh, maybe they are or maybe they're not, or you have several people that you're, you're dating or, or you're not dating anybody and you're like, oh, all right, I'm going to go out with my guy friends or my girlfriends. And why can girls say they have girlfriends and guys can't say they have boyfriends? I don't know, but a uh, different message, I think. Uh, but, but, you know, you go out to the clubs and, and, and you, you get all gussied up and, and all of these kind of different things. And it, it takes, it consumes us. And then it seems when you, you find that, that right person and you connect with them and at some point, you know, you make this uh, maybe a commitment to one another like, hey, you know what? We are going to have a standing date on Friday nights. And he's like, wait a second, I just made this commitment, but now I've been liberated from the anxiety of not knowing what I'm going to do on a Friday night. Or you think about the commitment of marriage, how it's meant to be. This commitment of, you know, till death do us part, for better or for worse. All of these kind of things. That, that this, this idea, this elevated commitment to one another. It's something that we have lost. I've had several people uh, come up to me over the years and, and they would say, they'll say something like this. We've been to every church in Tallahassee. And I'm like, why'd you pick us last? <laughs> but I'm glad you're here. And, and they'll start saying, you know, we left this one for this reason, this one for this reason, this one for this reason. And, I'm, and I'll tell people, you know what? We're, we're way more messed up than any of those churches. They got it together, you know. I, you know, and at some point, you have to say, maybe it's, not the other person maybe it's not 
the government. Maybe it's not this social organization. Maybe it's not the church, but maybe I need to look at myself. People don't like to do that because it's scary. But it's also one of these marks of maturity. And I think it is absolutely essential to ever get to this gestalt effect where we don't see a collection of individuals necessarily, or we do, but when we step back, we see how all those individuals work together for Christ's body, the church. If you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, in verse 5, 6, and 7, I think it brings this final component of what it truly means to be part of a local church. Paul writes, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with one another. You see, again, Paul's a wordsmith that under the holy inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he understands that in order for us to live in harmony with one another, we're going to need two things. Patience and encouragement. And patience is first. Then, and he says, goes on, he says, live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice. This picture of a singing in harmony, bringing one song to God, one offering to God, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept, circle that word accept, each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. And this has been kind of a theme that's been going on over the past three weeks. This whole idea of how we interact with one another, how we accept and love one another is a direct reflection on God as His children. And it's a scary thought that we have to, in turn, give that acceptance to others. In another place of the Bible, it says, make allowances for one another's faults. We all have faults we are all cracked pots we all have holes and the idea is to come together and encourage one another i was talking with somebody earlier this morning and we were talking about going on trips and using the trip as a metaphor of life and he was saying we were talking about baggage that we bring on trips. And he said, yes, I have purchased the whole collection of Samsonite. He's got, I got the big case, the small case, the rolling case, the, all of this kind of different baggage. And some of us carry a lot of baggage. Other of us, others of us, you know, we, we have a carry-on. We all have some sort of baggage. And trying to look at one another and saying, you know what, I understand that you're carrying this baggage, and I want to help you lighten your load. In this idea of acceptance, and I think when we get to that kind of point, that we, we start having this, more, this measure of maturity. I don't know about you, but when I was like 13 years old, starting when I was 13 years old, 
my parents became really uncool. Right? I mean, for some, I like wanted to hang out with them up to a point, like around 13. But at 13, I was like, yeah, not so much anymore. You know, all of a sudden, I was like, you know, I would do terrible things like say, hey, you know, uh, you're not allowed to like drop us off in front of the school anymore. You have to drop us like off two blocks away and I'll just walk in. It's cool. And stuff like that because I just I didn't want to be seen with them. And, uh, you know, they would, they would do different things that, that you know, as an adolescent uh, would just, just would embarrass me. And I didn't realize how much of this I had carried over uh, into my adult life. And as I've been letting this kind of this different kinds of baggage go. If you guys know my, my mom, she's uh, very enthusiastic. Uh, and uh, it just makes her who she is. But sometimes she can be a little bit loud. And one of the things that she, she does is... Uh, like when we accidentally get uh, separated, like in a store from her, uh, and when she realizes it, she'll she'll start yelling your name in the store, Mark, Mark, you know, kind of kind of thing. And I, I got to tell you, my whole life, I just like pretend like who is this crazy woman? Somebody call the police, you know, kind of thing, and try to ditch out. And and like finally, when I see her leave, I'll go and catch up with her just because I I was embarrassed and you know I'm not proud to say that but it's just that was my the maturity level that that I was at and uh last last time they were here uh we were in Target and we're walking around and uh you know we get separated and uh and I'm sitting there and doing something and suddenly you know I, I hear it just in the middle of the diet. Mark! Mark! And I'm like, and the interesting thing happened. Before I even realized, I found myself walking toward her. And actually looking for her, and it was hard because the noise was like bouncing off all the walls and everything. So the acoustics aren't very good in Target. Uh, and and I started having like all these thoughts come over me and just like thinking, you know, that's just, that's my mom. That's my mom. And, you know, it's so cool that she wants me to be with her. So much so that she doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and, and. I just I started thinking about like how fun she is and because she doesn't really care what other people think when she's having fun or she's looking or doing something that she has had so much fun in life and she's been able to experience so many different things and then I just had this flood of like wow you know this is the way God has created my my mother and how she is beautiful in his sight, and, and what makes her loud in Target makes her a phenomenal public speaker. And, and you know, and just saying, and I just had this, this, this sense of, of pride, and, and this also this sense of, wow, I've missed out on so many cool times with my mom because 
I was embarrassed or, or cared about whatever other people thought, and I wasn't loving her like she loved me or Christ loved us. And this, and it was just like this flooding of, of just, you know what? It just doesn't matter. What matters is her and how she has sacrificed and how she has committed herself and how she has accepted me through some really difficult times. And that is the form of a family that you can't see in the sum of its parts. But when they're all put together, you see it as a whole. And I think that that's the sign of a healthy local church is us being finally able to get to that point where we can commit and say, you know what, for better or for worse, to use a marriage term, or, you know, I know that there's going to be issues. There always are. The difference in our minds are how are we going to come together when there, are, when there is adversity and how are we going to overcome it? And once we've made that commitment and we've had that liberation, then it's easy to say, you know what, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice my time and my money and, and my wisdom and, and all of these different things to help bring people forward, to help make mature and mobilize fully devoted followers of Christ and be able to have the maturity to say, you know what, when somebody walks through this door and they're hurting or they're carrying a full collection of Samsonite luggage, that we can accept them and say, you know what, we are glad you are here. And let us walk alongside you and help you along this path. The gestalt effect. When the whole becomes something entirely different and so much more beautiful than the individual parts. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that this is a difficult concept for us to take. It goes so against our culture. It is what you teach. That you call the local church your bride. You call the local church your body. You've called, uh, you call the local church to be the instrument in which shares your hope to a lost and hurting world. God, let us emerge let us commit and be willing to sacrifice that we can accept and love and see others with your eyes so we can be the healthy, biblically functioning church that you have created us to be. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.